How do you do today, David? Jeremy, it's nice to be with you today. How are you? I am well. I have been having feelings, but that's over now. Never again. I feel fine you, now. <laughs> you, you, you bid them adieu, huh? Yeah. I see. Okay. Well, since we're divulging uh, secrets, I wanted to let you know that I am a writer. Oh. I'm not sure if you knew that or not. I did not know that. Are you a writer? Is this true or are you just playing with me because i'm a writer are you are you like doing what's the game where you say the same thing that someone said you just copy what the person said but you're doing it like before i can even say it my daughter is that uh, <laughs> that might be the name <laughs> yeah yeah no i'm not a writer okay you know that well i might still be having feelings <laughs> <laughs> exactly so many exactly. lies you know it's funny though because i prescribe writing for people that i work with all the time got it so you're a hypocrite. Right. Exactly. I just, you know, I'm one of those people that, you know, I can write something for my work. And if I know the subject matter and I can, I, I'm fairly capable in, you know, writing things in factual ways. But when it comes to finding my voice while writing, it's very difficult for me to do. Mm. I, I struggle with that. And yet there are incredible benefits to writing. There are yeah. therapeutic benefits to writing, to keeping a journal. There are a few studies, as I was thinking about this a little deeper, where folks who have had traumatic or extremely stressful events, if they've written in 15 minutes a day for four days in a row, they experienced better health outcomes up to four months later. Is it journaling or 15 minutes of just anything? It's journaling. And it's more targeted in terms of the prompts. The list is unbelievable. You know, asthma, rheumatoid arthritis patients, people who have gone through you know, extreme stress and illness, post-traumatic stress, anxiety, depression, OCD, grief and loss, low self-esteem, you name it, with a little bit of attention towards writing. This can be a really powerful therapy. And so, of course, when I was thinking about all of this, pondering it, I was thinking about you as a mm. professional writer. And I was also wondering if you'd be willing today to not only share a little bit about your experience and maybe some of the uh, wisdoms that you've gleaned by being a writer for as long as you have for those of us who, who still find it arduous. But I was also wondering if maybe there's a way during our session together to talk a little bit about the extensive amount of journaling you did this past year. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and maybe the backstory to what led to that. Yeah. And just so I've got the framework that you're coming in with as the studies, it's 15 minutes four times uh is that a day a week what was in a row four days in a row okay just that much so an hour total 
Okay, wow. And they experienced better health outcomes for four months later. That seems a pretty good reward. (laughs) Right? I know when I've talked to you about writing, I don't necessarily feel like it's framed that way. Obviously, it's your job. But I'm wondering if you can somehow draw a line between how the discipline that you have for writing and seeing it as a professional. And even though you're not... uh, seeing this through the scientific lens, if you could see how that process actually might help someone dealing with feelings, as you said, to start the show. Yeah, absolutely. So many thoughts, not to be confused with feelings on this topic. And I guess I'll go back and just answer your question about the last year first a bit, Mm -hmm. just to be a little grounded. So I have notebooks that are paper (laughs) and they're hard bound, but not too fancy. They're like the low end of the high end. If you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe three or four bucks instead of 30 or 40, but also not 55 cents. And I keep a journal in them, but the journal isn't what happened every day. It's not quite a diary. It's more just how I'm feeling and what's on my mind at the moment. And I think of it as sort of just getting the the ink flowing in the same way an athlete would warm up and get the blood flowing. It's just like, well, I've already started writing by the time I start writing when I do this sort of switch to turning on the computer. <laughs> Uh, if I use a computer. Sometimes I write by longhand. There's a million different tricks I use to write or get started writing because that's a kind of two-step process is to write, get started, step one, and then keep going. Step two, if you can do those, you too can be a professional writer. You know, you joke about that, but that's a really hard thing to do. I struggle with the keep going. I become self-conscious. I I write as a writer and not just, it, it's not an easy connection for me. So I appreciate diligence for you to keep all those journals, but I, but I really mostly admire and I'm just still kind of in awe uh, about how one dictates or listens to what's coming through them and gets the ink flowing. Mm. You know, there's this thing, right? If you write a page a day, that's not very much. But if you write a page a day for a year, then you've written 365 pages. You've written a whole book. You're amazing. (laughs) So it is what I call an erosion punch. Have I shared this phrase with you before? You have not. So when I was a kid, my dad had this joke where he would make a fist and he would just super, super, super slowly bring it toward me until it just touched my shoulder and then he would pull back (laughs) and he said that's my erosion punch it might not hurt today it might not hurt tomorrow but in 65 million years you're gonna really feel it (laughs) and you know indeed this is how you carve the colorado river carves the grand canyon you know it might not hurt today it might not hurt tomorrow but in 65 million years grand canyon 
So we don't want to work 65 million years, but if we can have a discipline where we're like, ah, let me just do what I can do today and keep going in that kind of river's diligence and lack of judgment or suspended judgment way, then yeah, over a year, we'll have written that many pages. And I have this trick in a million different ways. You know, my other trick is I have this thing called a map sit Make a plan, see it through, M-A-P-S-I-T. And it is an ultra complex piece of paper. No, it just is a piece of paper that has the numbers 1 through 21 on them in a box. <laughs> That's it. And on top it says maps it, M-A-P-S-I-T. And I just say, I'm going to try to do something for 21 days. It doesn't have to be 21 days in a row even, but I'm not going to judge it or stop until I've hit those 21 days. Mm. And it's just a nice kind of module for saying, okay, let me work on this for a couple hours, 21 times. And that's just my measure of I'm giving this a chance, <laughs> mm. whether it's, yeah, let's try to do this podcast. Let's just try it 21 times or do whatever the steps are. It might not always be recording, but there it is. Or let me try to learn Chinese and I'm just going to, you know, give it a couple hours, 21 times and just see where it goes. And that might be research or whatever, but I'm not watching Netflix. You know, it doesn't count. Obviously it's, it's actually doing it, whatever that means for me that I decide a bit in advance, I hope. So I have some intention. And then Every time I do it, I get the satisfaction of crossing off one of those boxes. Hmm. And if they're not all filled, then I can't say, oh, it failed or it was stupid or I'm stupid because I didn't give it the chance. You know, it's just a, a doable way to give something a chance, whether it's exercise, whether it's a writing project, whether it's any other form of self-improvement or just a discipline, a diet, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's a way to try things. And I try to have a MapSit partner, which to me is super, super low load on the other person. It's just someone I say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try it 21 times. So I just say it. So there's a level of accountability. Mm -hmm. Can I just check in with you or share the end result or process a bit at the end? Mm -hmm. So I got to do it. And if I do it, I have that other reward where there's someone I'm going to be able to process it with. And also they might be asking me six months later, <laughs> six years later, Hey, what about that thing? Like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm still on 11, you know? <laughs> so that's the map sit. Map sit, map sit. Make a plan, see it through. Make a plan, see it through. You, I, I felt the, the electricity when you said the words, check it off the list. Like you got through the day that felt good. I'm getting from you. And obviously it's a single drop in a cup, but 21 drops is quarter cup potentially. And that feels good. I'm imagining as well when you get, when you have that sense that you accomplished something, is there self-talk in the midst of those 21 days where you just can't help yourself. You start judging it and it could be good judgment. Like, Ooh, this is going somewhere and I can see this turning into something or ah, this is just awful, but Hey, I'm doing a map sit. You know, we could add a, a S H I T to this, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but I got to see it through. And then my follow-up question is about that, 
that feel good. I've been doing some research around dopamine recently, and I'd like to share why I think maybe that feel good during this plan of a map sit might be also something that's neurochemical. Yeah. I mean, crossing it off, it's that feeling of accomplishment. I did this. I'm in process because it's so hard in writing, especially if you're writing a book, as I've done three times over the last 10 years, because you just aren't done for like two or three years. <laughs> and you can't even really see it till you've got a complete draft. And that's a, a year often between stages. And it's really not good until almost the very end of the very last draft. <laughs> wow. It just doesn't quite work. You know, you can kind of imagine a car and it's like, wow, this is a beautiful seat or a windshield or a trunk or a battery. But until it all clicks together, it just looks like a big pile of junk. <laughs> mm. So that's the issue with a book. <laughs> um, right, right. And that's, that's tough. That's and very so tough. to kind of divide it into those modules, but there's a couple other things I do. It's been so sustaining for me to be in a writer's group, which is other people trying to do this. So we just bring our S H I T T Y stuff in and share it and you just have less pretension and you get feedback. You give feedback, which I think is so important. Mm. My wife has a saying that she quotes often, all advice is autobiographical. And I find that true in editing. Mm. Anything I edit, I will see the same issue in my own writing, but I will not have been able to see it mm. until I saw it in somebody else's. So when people go to like writing programs or I'm always like, yeah, you want to get your stuff workshopped. You want to get feedback. You want to get ahead. But actually the best you can get from this is often the feedback you give other people. Do not sell that short. Don't try to cheat on that because that will develop the skill to be able to see these issues and suggest fixes for them. Because think about it. If you can edit yourself your goal, then you can just do something terrible and just edit it and make it better and then edit it and make it better and then edit it and make it better. And if you can do that, you're done. I mean, that's what's so hard about being an aspiring writer, reading writers is you can have so much judgment, but you're only reading their final, final draft. And you're comparing your kind of car in progress to their stuff that's on the lot. And it's mm -hmm. so different. You don't get to see their behind the thing stuff. So when you do that, with other writers, it's invaluable for yourself. Wow. So much in there to unpack. I mean, the idea that getting that feedback, that is a, that's a massive flow trigger and something that, that progressive business is starting to use more often, more frequently. They're not doing the year review anymore. They're going project to project and staying and coaching the, the, their employees and you see that, of course, in sports, there's a constant coaching. So for you to say two to three years until a product comes out and also that it's not good for most of that time, I also think you, you might be underselling the mental agility and the self-compassion that it takes to 
right in a not good way for so long and still keep the momentum and also to share it, to lend that out. That just feels really vulnerable for a non-writer like myself. But then the idea of finding your own blind spots by analyzing somebody else's work is also just so powerful and something that I think is across the board important when within our own relationships, within the things that we're striving towards. Do you have a larger kind of mental framework outside of MAPSIT to sustain through that whole slog and also to not lose confidence? Or is it just now so ingrained that this is your trade that you're capable of pushing through? I lose confidence all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I wouldn't say it's every 11 days or, you know, you said, oh, do you ever have that judgment in the middle of a map set? It's like, I have it, you know, do you I have it in the middle of every minute (laughs) of my life? (laughs) And the answer is, yeah. And I think there's something funny, though, because the judgment is usually anticipatory and retrospective. It's not often in the activity. And I think that's one reason why someone could just do this four times for 15 minutes and get a lot out of it is because in the doing of it, it's pretty flowy. It's quite immersive and it's fun. And what you'll find, I just tell people, start writing. And it keeps going. The trick to writing is, I say, if you want to be a writer, just sit and write, and then you're a writer. (laughs) A writer is someone who writes. Not, I have the aspiration to do this, or I have the ambition, or the hope, or the dream. You know, do it, and you can iterate and get better. And when you're doing it, when I'm doing it, it is fun. It is rewarding. I do lose track of time. I have that pleasure and that surprise, even if I'm writing nonfiction about myself, I'm surprised what happens. But after, before, there's a lot of lead up and a lot of tension. And it's like, am I far enough along? Is it good enough? Am I doing it in the right way? You know, those three really punishing questions that we've talked about before. And I think routine is what's sustaining as much as anything else there. It's having a structure like this is the time I do my writing. These are the breaks I take and kind of forcing myself actually to take breaks at the time, not when it's good or when it's done, but when it's time. And then I'm trusting in the process to take care. You know, I'm trusting in time. I'm, I'm erosion punching again, Mm -hmm. that if I just keep showing up, at the time it'll work out and that's what I've seen happen even if I can lose faith in it over and over and I do things like meditate to have a bigger distance from myself and my ego I exercise to clear my brain and deprive myself of oxygen that is going to start arrowing towards self-judgment rather than to creative work. I take a nap. Again, the idea is to just be fresh and be fairly innocent and positive, if I can, (laughs) when I'm coming at it. I think one of the challenges of the work is that it's all of your own initiative. 
it's not responsive. It's all proactive in that sense. It's not like answering emails or requests. It doesn't come at you. It's a blank page over and over and over again. And so there's no way to do it kind of tired or distracted. I shouldn't say there's no way to do it. We all do things with some level of fatigue and some level of distraction, but those things to just come in it as fresh as I can or just get into it and find myself in it and just start running are necessary. You know, maybe you can skim read, but you, you can't skim write. So that kind of presence is necessary and that's that's why it's rewarding, I think, as an activity. I'm sure, yeah. And it's also probably why it's taxing. You know, there's a technique called the Pomodoro technique. I don't know if you've heard of that before. Yeah, yeah. Where you, it's in break modules of like, was it 15, 20 minutes or something? Around 25 minutes and then the five-minute break. And have you ever explored using something like that model while writing to sustain cognitive load on on one level and just run the experiment to see if it allows you to to have more stamina i do that i just absolutely do do that it's not even something i've tried it's something i i already had going before i'd heard of this so i've never formally plugged it all in i have a kitchen timer mm-hmm. on my desk mm. and it's a kitchen timer I say that because it has multi-modes for baking. (laughs) And so I have it go off at 20 minutes, 40 minutes, 60 minutes, and 120 minutes. It only has four (laughs) timers, let's just set it a time. Mm -hmm. So effectively, it gives me a break every 20 minutes. What do you do? I get up and I do a neck and shoulder stretch. Mm. And then I look out a window for 20 seconds. Hmm. And that, and the distance. And again, that's for my eyes, that's for my body, but it's also that necessary reboot. And I fail to do it at my peril. And I do it, I fail with some regularity. Maybe one and two or one and three of those, I don't really take the proper or full break. I'm locked in. And it doesn't work out better. It's sort of paradoxical maybe, but you have to take that break to succeed at keeping going. Mm, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, looking out the window is a really smart move. Um, That's also a nice nervous system reset to get into a little panoramic vision. And I'm imagining in Missoula, looking out your window, there's at least a couple of trees, maybe some mountains, which would also be really rebooting as you say. But I also wanted to share that that little nugget on dopamine as well, where common thought in science really initially with dopamine was that it, it's the feel-good neurochemical, what you get when good things happen. And it's been associated with addiction, specifically cocaine. And it's obviously in the rah-rah self-help you know, scale your business and win the championship type uh, talk. It's always thrown out there as the dopamine hit from, you know, winning the thing or nailing the deal or whatever. But lately, very prominent psychologists and neuroscientists have thought of it and, and done studies around it where it's actually the other way around. So, Carol Dweck, for example, with growth mindset mentions 
that dopamine is on the front end. It's when that person with a growth mindset kind of rolls up their sleeve and says, like, let's get it on. Even if they don't succeed, they get the dopamine at the onset. Scott Barry Kaufman is another psychologist who mentions creativity with dopamine and talks a little bit about how it's also been the common thing that mind wandering is bad and you go default mode network with your wandering. And his research is if we can effectively daydream, then we're really enhancing and boosting our creativity and getting that dopamine. And then also neuroscientist Dr. Andrew Huberman, same deal, talks about how the dopamine is on the front end. And it's that we're on the right track is the inner thought process there that makes us feel connected, excited. And I, I wonder as well, at, on, because on the whole level, the, the sort of the, the macro kind of big picture scope, you, you are a writer. You have completed the whole process. You have written books that have been published and talked about them on speaking tours, et cetera. And so maybe at this stage, it might be a little easier for you to know that I'm on the right track. I have to keep going, even if it's, you know, the SH kind of maps it. So I, I think that's fascinating as I think about high performance. And I feel like there's so many parallels between what you talked about today and the people who succeed in whatever endeavor that they are uh, embarking upon. And, and I'm, we could go on down that road for a while, but I would like to circle back to why you kept such uh, a robust journal this past year and the events leading up to you documenting your, essentially, your day-to-day life. Sure. So there's a few terms that may be useful. So one is research and the other is reporting when you're writing nonfiction. So research, I think of as like going to a library, stuff you find in books or searching the web and things you find online. It's you basically looking at text or primary sources. Reporting is when you're actually there when something's happening. So if I'm at a military uh, battle <laughs> and I'm taking notes on who's wearing what, who's getting shot, who's moving in what formation, that's reporting. If I'm going to a science fiction convention and I'm writing who's there, what do the people in line look like, what's the snacks, reporting. And being there is incredibly useful. And it's something people miss if you don't have a reporter. That's what a reporter is, ideally. It's not someone just reading something they've read or their own opinion. It's someone who is there and is trying to translate that experience into a story for you. And I was trying in the last year to write about my own experiences. And what I was doing was reporting. And I was reporting on myself. And maybe that's what a lot of journaling is, but that's often more internal, but this was somewhat internal. And I was running this experiment 
and I'm trying to think how to say it succinctly, but essentially, as you and I have discussed, I went on a five-day silent meditation retreat. And I went on this with very little experience, preconceptions, or even intentions. I was just in kind of open reporter mode and just trying a bunch of different things. So I was, my last book had just come out and I had gone on tour for it and I was back and I was just trying to be open. You know, when I'm writing a book, it takes so long and I have to be so focused. I call it submarining because it's like being in a submarine. You go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and I get more and more closed off to everyone and everything. And this was my time to be full aperture, just wide open, taking everything in. So if I see a poster, if there's a talk, if there's a interesting little shop that has a door open, if there's a street preacher, if someone knocks on my door, I'm going to answer and try to follow all those things. There's a radical openness. That's the opposite of submarining. And so along those lines, I saw this note on like an email listserv for a five-day silent meditation retreat. And I asked my wife if the timing worked, and she said, sure. And so I just pretty much went blind, and I was busy with a whole bunch of other stuff, so I wasn't thinking too much about it. And long story short, it was an incredible experience, and it was experiential. Something I hadn't thought about going in (laughs) is a silent meditation retreat, if it's really silent, is going to be almost all your own experience. They didn't tell me how to sit or what to think about or even how to breathe barely. So it was really learning by doing. And I got to these incredible headspaces and perspective that were life-changing and made me want to stay in that perspective and that space. But how do you do that if you go back to your everyday life? And so that was the kind of challenge that I set myself. I was like, can I live with these insights and this really, really big picture perspective in parenting? in trying to make a living, in being with my wife, in hiring a lawyer to help my mother-in-law with something, in being stuck in line or traffic, in checking Amazon for my reviews or reader ratings or sales numbers or getting or answering email or just every aspect of life. I mean, the way I put it with the retreat is it was like going slower and slower and slower until I was in the present moment. Like you're trying to, like you're a hobo trying to run and catch a train, but the way you catch it is not by going faster and faster, but by going slower and slower. So could I be in that now in the here that we all know in the politics, in the pandemic, as it turns out. And so With that challenge, I was like, well, let's try it. And just every day, whatever kind of came up, I was trying to write about that. So I don't know if that's journaling. I don't know if that's writing. I don't know if that's reporting. But 
that was the challenge that I set myself in part with your encouragement and feedback. Cause I had circled back to you and said, I've had this experience. I'm trying to put my head around it and I don't even know if I should be writing about it. If it should be separate, I don't want to soil it by trying to make it part of my work. And you said, ah, take the risk. And so that, that pushed me there. And that then of course brought you into my process that I guess prompted your, your thoughts today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, among other things, after seeing your process, I was in a great deal of awe for your ability to transcribe the now. Just as a, a fellow contemplative, I suppose, I also wonder why it's so challenging to be in the now when you have to call a lawyer for your mother-in-law. It, and I know it is. It's challenging for me, of course, all the time. And it it's almost like I feel so good being so in the now that when I have to do some pesky errand or something that's just poking and prodding, I become grumpy or somewhat judgmental of, well, wait a minute, you don't understand. I'm in the now, man. And why are you poking me right now? I don't need that. But obviously the capacity to hold enough space to be poked and to still be in the now is uh, available to all of us all the time. And I think it does circle back to writing in some ways as well, where especially writing pen and paper, pencil and paper, where you have to use your motor skill, slow down and access different emotions and feelings and thoughts and deliberately in this motor cortex way transcribe that on a piece of paper and I think that that activity and maybe that's why it's so difficult for so many people is that it's time consuming it's labor intensive you have to call through your thoughts but you also have to think s slow enough to be able to get that out and down you know I have a few things I sometimes put out there when people are hitting bumps in writing. And I wonder if I could share them and you could tell me if you already do them or if you're curious about them or what's kind of attractive or what you're skeptical of. Yeah, no, that sounds great. So the first thing is to want something. And I think that what separates superior writing from the rest isn't actually the quality of the prose or how well you choose your words. It's does the writer want something? And so much of writing when we're students is just like, we just have to do it to fill an assignment. And that's such a waste. I just feel like every single paper everyone ever writes would be better if just at the top they had to write, what do I want from this? <laughs> <laughs> and just say something you're trying to get from it. You know, I want to entertain. I want to make you fall in love with me. I want to get a raise. I want to feel understood. I want people to feel comfortable having me come and be their teacher or trainer. I want you to consider this person to be the candidate for governor that you should support. Whatever it is, just want something and that will 
be the lifeblood of the writing. It's mm. the intention that you talk about in so much of the other work. It's setting that kind of compass. And it doesn't have to be expressed. It can be expressed in the first sentence. You know, I write to convince you to have this person be the candidate for governor. <laughs> or I write to propose that I be the leader of this team for your company. Or I write to suggest that we go on a date sometime soon. <laughs> Whatever it is, you can start with that or you could just know it yourself. And it's just like, oh yeah, this is just something I'm doing because I, I want you to be informed about this or I want you to be entertained or I want you to know my soul uh, or I want you to have this technique that hopefully is useful to you. It's been useful to me and it'd be so meaningful to me if it was something you tried to whatever could you, could you also say i'm writing to express my trauma with a hope of this having a healing effect yes absolutely of course yeah i want to have this kind of with some white space around it a beginning and a middle and an end so i can even look at it myself and it's something I can share with others or I can see it. And I can write a new ending that follows whatever happened if I want. But it can be contained. It doesn't have to keep being jagged and I'm stuck in the middle of it. It's something I think about when people are writing about trauma, especially. Mm -hmm. I think coming to that understanding of it is is a great boon that I've certainly seen people where they're like, I'm having nightmares over and over about something for years. They write about it and it's hard seemingly, or it is hard because it's traumatic and it's intense, but there's also something that helps them just fully digest it and have a little bit more of a power in it or power over it or a distance from it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exactly. consume them. They become the author <laughs> right. rather than a character in it. Yeah, I could totally see that. And to your greater point around wanting something, I can also, I already feel more locked in, more focused with if I was setting that intention at the top of the page and making it clear on some general level what it is that I want from this experience. Well, it's like, I got to write a bio. It's like, okay, yes, you could just write a bio, but I'm thinking it will actually be faster and it will certainly be better if you think, what do I want in this bio? I want them to have something that is three sentences long that describes me in a way that, you know, people will want to listen to the words if I'm giving a talk or follow the class or respect the board that I'm part of or whatever the bio is for, for example, or just know me a little bit, be interested in what I'm going to say after they hear this little introduction. Whatever it is, it can be really simple, but just having that 10 seconds, 30 seconds to set that intention or what you want from it is invaluable. The second thing is have an audience <laughs> and it could just be yourself, but I think we get in this sort of ill-fitting stiff clothes and I find that bad writing is almost always too formal rather than too informal. <laughs> it's stiff because we just get in that like, oh, I need to be writing now. 
Mm-hmm. And it's almost like we're like typing with a funny posture. Like That's me. I need to have a suit on and do this. <laughs> and what I say is like often just try to loosen people. I try a few different things. One is I say, write it like you're talking to your mom. <laughs> and I say that not because your mom is dumb, but because you wouldn't just be weirdly fancy and pretentious with your mom. Cause she's your mom. She knows you. She would, you. Yeah. W- you wouldn't be like, well, several mechanisms were tried in order to initiate a positive process with a <laughs> decline in transgressions over a multi-year period. <laughs> It'd just be so weird if you said that to your mom. Yeah. And if you're like, we tried several ways to fix this problem we were having with vandalism, specifically people breaking into cars up and down the block. And I set up video cameras and we had neighborhood watch posts and we put up flyers and we even had little sirens. My neighbor, Bob, trained his dog to bark like crazy, which set my other neighbor's six-month-old to crying half the night. A great story. All of a sudden, I'm into it. I had no idea what I was going to say when I started riffing, but like, (laughs) that's because you're talking to your mom. And what you'll find is you didn't know what you were (laughs) talking about. (laughs) And this horrible language isn't just that like you're stiff and it's hard for other people to understand it. It's like, you really just weren't saying anything. Yeah. And when you're saying it to your mom, you're just like, let me just say it to my mom and just say it. You can imagine it. Like another way I say people, sometimes I'm like literally write this in your email program. Cause I think we're just used to being more casual in our email. Mm-hmm. Like we open Microsoft word and it's this big thundering towering judgment it's like we have to explain ourselves before the pearly gates whereas like in an email we're like okay i'm just sending an email mm-hmm. or hell a text <laughs> if, if you're you know a messenger or a chat and just email to yourself and it doesn't have like the font choice and the formatting and all that stuff that gets in the way of flow yeah. that's again something to do at the very 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 end Yeah, you talk about, you say flow right there too. And that makes me think of the challenge skills ratio where if I was sending an email and I was talking to my mom and let's just say, unlike you that just riffed because you are capable of doing that, I suppose I'm capable of doing it too. But in terms of uh, scaffolding this experience, I could even write uh, a conversation that I need to have with my mom that potentially that I haven't had yet yeah, mom, I talked to the realtor. The seller is actually a structural engineer. He's willing to meet with us on Saturday to go over why the foundation looks like a jungle gym. (laughs) Right? Yes. And you'll find what your topic sentence is often at the end, I guess is what I'm trying to say. When you talk to your mom, Mm -hmm. instead of trying to do this perfect sentence, and I can't change that. It took me so long to write that. And then I have to do the next one after that. You'll say this stuff and you'll go, Oh, what do I want with this? I'm just, I just wanted to say I'm writing to fill you in on what's happening and let you know why I'm, why I'm not as worried as I was when we started. Mm -hmm. I was pretty worried when we got that report, 
but I'm not as worried. And here's the background on that. Mm. And then that he's an engineer and da, da, da. And then just at the end, like, I don't know, maybe I'll still feel terrible. And obviously we'll need a second opinion since he's the seller. We can't just take his opinion, but it doesn't hurt to hear what he has to say. And I'll just let you know what I hear after. Right. I like it. And if, if you can self-talk like that too, that's often even harder. <laughs> but if you can say to yourself, like, oh, you know, I'm worried. I just really want to, I was excited when I made that request and I haven't heard back mm -hmm. and I'm afraid that it's stupid or that they're going to say no, or I'll have to start all over. And I'm already thinking, why did I try it that way? Or what will I do when they say no? And let me just stop for a second and say, well, what is a reasonable timeline? How can I follow up? And also, it makes sense to feel that way. It's just hard to be uncertain. Sometimes it's easier to get bad news than to be in limbo. Just that makes sense too. And just kind of have that way of talking to yourself where you can kind of be reasonable but also human yeah i really like that and i that's that's something that's a little more comfortable for me to do but the way you describe that just fits so nicely in how people can become resilient and kind of keep the grit that is required to sustain over a long period of time as you know coming back to your you know couple years to write a book and it also de-escalates the situation in my head to be able to just articulate it in a just a kind of a pragmatic way. And it also reminds me what my values are by saying it that way. And I like that. It seems to help potentially to inform what it is that I want to do next in a way that I don't get carried off track. So we've got want something. We've got write to your mom. Do you have another one? Yeah, last one. So if it's important that the thing be good, <laughs> uh -huh. which it often isn't, you know, you're often just kind of trying to figure it out for yourself or getting something down or it's short enough that the purpose can be served and it will be good. But if something's longer or more complicated or higher stakes, then you want it to be good. And people think often that you should just write something really well <laughs> to begin with. And that's the best way to have it be really good. And if you can do that, great. But that is not how I or any of dozens, hundreds of other writers I know personally or have seen their process through research and reporting work. Every single writer I know who is professional has this process instead. You write it really badly <laughs> and then you make it a little bit better. So it goes from really bad to bad. <laughs> and then you make it a little bit better. So it goes from bad to not that bad. And then you make it a little bit better. So it goes from not that bad to okay, but not great. 
and then you make it a little bit better. So it goes from okay to good-ish, a little bit better. So it goes from good-ish to good. And then you make it a little bit better. So it goes from good to pretty good. And that is a seven-step process for those of you who were not counting at home. <laughs> from really bad to bad to okay but not great to good-ish to good to really pretty good. Yeah. And what's funny is that you can do that. It will have a better end result and it will be faster than if you try to do something that's really good to begin with. It's so paralyzing and just hard to do that. Whereas if I said, can you do a really bad job <laughs> at this yeah. writing assignment? Can you write, give me a really bad bio? Can you do that in like 10 minutes? You're like, yes, <laughs> I can do a really bad one in five. Right now, right off the top. And I'm like, okay, can you give me five more minutes? Can you just take something that's really bad? really bad. Can you just do a couple tweaks to make it just bad? <laughs> hmm. And I'm like, can I got something that's bad. I hate to ask you, but can you just do like, can you give me like five minutes on this, 10 minutes on this? Just make it like not that bad. Just can you find a couple things to just make it not as bad as it is right now? Uh -huh. I've got something that's not that bad. <laughs> can you just push it to goodish? And we can do that. We can improve something by 10%. We can make a couple tweaks, especially when we take that break and we go look out a window for the 30 seconds mm. or we worry it and walk away. As some writing books say, you worry, you're like, oh, I'm going to try to do good. We do it for the 15 minutes and then we come back the next day and we do it for 15 minutes mm. or we do it for a map set and then we come back. And we do a series of these map sets and we're like, okay, the next one I'm going to, I'm just going to do a really terrible job at learning Chinese <laughs> for 21 days. And then I'm going to do a second pass and I'm just going to end up bad at the end of that. And again, how many it is where you are in the process. I mean, how much less pressure is it if I say, can you do a really bad job? It's, it takes all the pressure off. Absolutely. Want something, talk to your mom and do go a really from, bad job. Go from really <laughs> bad to pretty good. How long is that seven-step process typically? Is that a it, week? Is that a month? Oh, it can be... A year. Well, that this is my actual good news. It, it's fast. Mm. It can be within one hour. Wow. Again, it's the trick is to start and then keep going, and that lets you do both those things. Mm. So just vomit total garbage out onto the page mm -hmm. and then stop and go, okay, let me capitalize something <laughs> yeah it's really powerful i mean you give yourself permission to suck and to be really bad at at the start and you also define the the parameters of the process and that is also really calming a lot of people suffer from overwhelm me included and it's hard not to suffer from overwhelm right now during the midst of a pandemic but I, I notice that the people who are doing the best during this time, and it sounds like in through your trade that it would be similar. And certainly those that I work with and in a high level of business and sport and such that when the overwhelm kicks in, you shrink the process. And 
that when you reframe what it is that you're doing, when things are big, go small, right? And you, not only are you saying that, you're saying when things are big, go small and make it really bad. And that is really liberating. That's easy to do. And that permission is, at the end of the day, ends up seeming like motivation. And you can roll up your sleeves and you can get into that growth mindset you know, type of uh, framework because you're going to start and you've allowed yourself to start somewhere that is just kind of off the cuff and you know, not, so, not so good, not so polished. And it seems to set your nervous system up for success. It seems to really kind of allow person to gain momentum over that process and really see the the next step in front of you and that is that is all through the high performance lens all really uh, valuable and important stuff to be able to do and it's a version of the writer's workshop for yourself where it's so much easier to edit something than to create it from scratch Mm. and just make something a little bit better Mm-hmm. You know, if I said, hey, Damon, I've got this piece of writing. Can you just take a look at this cover letter for it? You know, you can look at that. You're not like, oh, you're the writer. I could never suggest something. You're like, well, sure. <laughs> and I'll just mm-hmm. look. If I got a note, I'll give you a note. Mm-hmm. So, you know, can you do that for yourself just in that fairly modest way? And also just know these writers, if you're comparing yourself, you know, they've just done that with editors as well as with themselves, as well as with their writing group so many times. I mean, hundreds of these steps, not just seven usually. And so that's why it's super polished. It's not just magic. It's gone through that process. And you don't need to do that for everything because you don't need to do a perfect published professional, this is my living book with every last little thing. And you can do it like three times, whatever. It's you find your own key. But again, just taking off anything that's doing that stiffness. And that's again why the wanting. Say it like you're talking to your mom or doing an email and just give it a few different short passes instead of one perfect pass. Mm, such good advice. I feel more capable of picking up my moleskin than ever. Yes. Thank you for that. Thank you for being with me on my writer's journey. There's all sorts of other issues beyond (laughs) doing it and what you do with it and how you do it. But it's, it's fun to be able to share some of the gleanings from my own experience. And I would encourage our audience, if you were interested in taking a deeper dive on this topic, as we have such a, a wise professional here with us, let us know. Yeah. We love your comments, your suggestions, and we like reading what you write to us. So thank you. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeremy. Stimulus and Response is hosted by Damon Valentino and Jeremy N. Smith and produced by Matt Mullins at Black Rooster Productions. Please rate, review, and share the show. And please join us next time for another stimulating exploration of the best parts and best ways of being human and being alive.